Intelligence Sessions podcast. Sessions is a ministry that exists to help you grow in your walk with Christ and to live wisely in His world. Welcome to, what is this, week four of Winter Sessions 2023-24, and uh, I want to thank Walt for an excellent job last week. Clearly, community groups are up and running, which I think is uh, reflected in our attendance this evening. Uh, but that's a good thing. Uh, so uh, normal attenders who are now in your Monday night groups, uh, hello to you if you're listening online, and I hope you are. Uh, so let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll kick off the talk for tonight. Father, um, thank you for the time you've given us together. Thank you for the time you've given us to dig into your word and uh, to grow by knowing well what you have done for us and whom you are calling us to be. And um, so as we look tonight at the topic of the people of God, Father, I pray that you would help us to, um, to see what you want us to see, to believe what is true, that your spirit here would be leading and guiding us into that. I pray, Father, that he would help me as I speak the things you've laid on my heart and my mind, and that you'd be with my brothers and sisters as they seek to uh, soak in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so uh, tonight we are um, discussing the topic, the people of God. And um, this topic actually touches on a lot of different things. Uh, so there's like, for example, things like land, for example. So like, you know, there's a lot of overlap with other topics. And so it's kind of always a bit of a challenge, like to keep on track and not to, not to go to the side and everything. But this one also has interesting contemporary uh, application, specifically in terms of like what's going on right now in the Middle East and everything. Um, uh, and, you know, so I might say a little bit about that in the talk if there's time. If not, you can feel free to ask about stuff like that during the questions. Uh, just keep in mind during the questions, uh, we are recording this, so uh, your questions will be on the recording. Um, and so having said that, I want to just start with a way that um, one of the ways that I like to summarize what the story of the Bible is about. Okay, there's a bunch of different things that can be said. I like to say that the Bible tells the story of how God is setting apart a people for his own possession to live under his rule in a place that he provides. Okay. And, he, and there, um, that, that summary there kind of might clue you in a little bit to why I selected the topics I was going to talk on this winter, right? Because if you just work your way backwards through the sentence, the place that God provides, okay, that is the theme of the temple being played out. Uh, the, uh, the living under his rule, that's what I'll address next week, which is Christ the King, the theme of Jesus Christ as King. And, um, and today, uh, the, the story of God setting apart his own people, a people for his own possession. And I'm very purposeful in using the present tense there because I think it's important for us to realize that this is an ongoing work that God is doing. This is something that God is in process of doing here tonight among us, um, among the, all the things that we do, right? We are caught up in the middle of that, of that drama, of that story of what God is doing. And so uh, not to be too original here, 
This story begins, as so many others do, in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. So uh, when mankind is created, God says this, let us make man in our image. And there I've given you the, the Hebrew for it, because these words are going to be important for what I have to say. Um, so it's in our image, image in Hebrew is Betzal Menu, okay? And it comes from the word Tselem, Tselem, the word that means image, after our likeness. So according to our likeness is Kidmutenu, which comes from the word Demut. So image, Tselem, likeness, Demut. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. There you have it again in his Tselem. In the image, Tselem, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay. So obviously an important thing to ask when we're considering like man whom God has created, obviously created, right, to be in relationship with him. Uh, a big part of that is that he's created us to be in his image, in his likeness. But the text actually doesn't directly give us a lot of what that means. Um, <clears throat> as we'll see in a minute, I do think there are some important clues. And so this is kind of a ripe area for speculation, right? Like what does the image of God mean? And I think probably the most common answer uh, given by Augustine and those who follow him. This is common in Catholic traditions. This is common in Lutheran, in Reformed, is to say that the image of God in mankind is our reasoning capacity and our moral capacity, right? That we are, well, how are we similar to God? Well, God, God thinks and God is a moral being and so are we. Um, but I think that actually kind of doesn't, it, that's not, you might notice that that's not really grounded in the text, Right. That's that's more like saying like like taking this as just like warrant for kind of speculating and perhaps people can't be blamed for doing that and saying, hmm, how are we like God? But if you consider the words and their actual meaning and uh, some stuff about the context, I think we get a very interesting answer. So uh, the word image, if you were to just search the word selem throughout the Hebrew Bible, what you would find is that um, it refers to a statue of a thing, okay? Uh, like, um, very commonly, an idol in a temple, okay? Or you might think of that incident in 1 Samuel when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And remember, the Philistines, it doesn't go very well for them, does it? And they're like, oh, this is a hot potato. We got to send the Ark back. And what do they send it with? Because they, they, a plague breaks out among their cities. Uh, and this, this, kind of strangely, right, these Selem, these Selamim, these images of golden tumors and mice, which was probably connected to what the plague actually was like for them. It doesn't, text doesn't explain, right? But those are images, okay? And then likeness, okay, can also refer to that kind of thing. But most commonly, it's just like the resemblance of something, the, the, what something looks like very often. And the most common usage is in like what we looked at when we saw the temple, right? Like Ezekiel's vision of the cherubim who had hands like humans and the appearance of this. And even God, right? He had the appearance of Jasper and uh, the, what had the appearance of his throne, the appearance, the appearance, the appearance. Uh, but we don't want to say that this means that we look like God, right? It probably doesn't mean that. Uh, the Bible's pretty clear that God is 
invisible, at least in terms of uh, our need-to-know basis, three times in the New Testament, in Colossians 1.15, 1 Timothy 1.17, and Hebrews 11.27, Paul, um, Paul and the writer of Hebrews refers to God as a oratas, which means invisible, okay, unseen. Uh, also, John 4.24 tells us God is spirit, Okay? And this seems to be at least part of the justification for the second commandment, right? No graven images. The idea that it is impossible to physically depict God in a way that does justice to his glory and doesn't represent him in a way that is somehow demeaning to his holiness. Okay? So that's probably not, it probably doesn't mean, you know, we look like God. Uh, and if you actually consider like the ancient Near Eastern context, you get some interesting insights. So ancient Near Eastern kings, it turns out, uh, both in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, commonly referred to themselves or were commonly referred to as images of their gods. And so one good example to this is a letter to the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon, which reads as follows. The father of the king, my lord, was the very image, and notice the, the Akkadian word there, Salam, just like the Hebrew Tselem, of Baal. And Baal here probably refers to the Babylonian god Marduk. And the king, my lord, is likewise the very image, Salam, of Baal. So uh, here you have a good example, an interesting parallel. Okay, and this is very consistent. And if you think about, if that informs Genesis, right, what's an interesting innovation? That all of us bear the image of God, right? It isn't just the king. It isn't just the ruler. It is everyone, male and female, bear the image of God. Another interesting hint comes from its application to things like monuments and statues. Remember, I said the basic image, uh, the basic idea of an image is that it is a, like a statue. And here is um, a, a very well-known one. This is the statue of a, a statue of a king or a ruler named Hadad Yithi, who, uh, and this is believed to date to the 9th century BC, probably around 850. And notice the language that is used. This is on his skirt here. He has a bilingual inscription. Part of, uh, it's the same thing in both Aramaic and Akkadian. And here from the Aramaic, the image, the demut, that's the word the Hebrew uses for like, uh, likeness, of Hadad Yithi, which he has set up before Hadad of Sikon, the statue, the tselem, of Hadad Yithi, king of Guzan and Sikon and of Azron for exalting and continuing his throne. And then it goes on. You can see the rest of it there. But notice there, what is that saying? That's saying that, you know, just as the king, right, who is the image of God, is representing that divine God's rule on earth to his subjects, so here, this statue represents the rule of Hadad Yithi, in the place where he erected the statue. It's kind of like putting up a flag, right? The flag goes up on, on Iwo Jima, right? It means we've claimed this. This is under American dominion, okay? Um, and so I think much closer to the meaning in cultural context and in the words that are used here, the meaning of the image of God is that to bear the image and likeness of God is to be one who rules over God's creation as a representative of God's ultimate rule in heaven. Like, just like that statue represents Hadad Yithi's rule where he put it, so we represent God's rule where he has put us, okay? And we do this through our work, through our words, through our actions, and through our affections. 
and we do it before one another by watching, by, by other people watching us, right? Letting our lights shine before men. We can represent God's rule here on earth. Um, and to the rest of creation, the way even that I treat my dog or the ants that are trying to get into my house, right? Um, and interestingly, we have a, a cool contextual confirmation of this idea because look at what God says right after he creates us or he, 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 he announces our creation in his image. He says, be fruitful and multiply, that is make even more image bearers and fill the earth and then check it out and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see that? These are words of authority. These are rules of governing, okay? And I think that is very much the idea here. That's what humanity in general, as the people whom God has created are called to do, okay? And so, you know, the man and the woman are placed in the garden and then we all know what happens in chapter three, right? Sin is introduced. And think about what sin does to the image of God conceived of in this way, right? What, it was, what does it look like if we essentially are all saying, you know what? God's got his commands, but you know who's really calling the shots around here? This guy right here. What is, am I representing God's rule? No, I'm overthrowing God's rule. I'm, I'm, I'm defacing God's rule. I'm defacing God's image in me, okay? And so God promises to do something about this. And the primary promise that we run into for, uh, very early on in Genesis, okay, is this. And you, you probably most of you are familiar with this, Genesis 3.15. This is one of the things uh, that he says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your he head and you shall bruise his head heal. Okay, so God is going to do something about the serpent and his work, whatever we want to conceive of as his offspring that's not as important for our conversation tonight. But God is going to do something about this, okay? And it's, he's going to do it through a seed of the woman. And you could translate that word seed or offspring. It works a lot like the way the word seed or offspring works in, in English, right? Like I could refer to my son and my daughters as my seed if I want to be kind of gross. And, but, you know, you, you would get the point, right? Um, now that concept is really important in Genesis. Uh, the word itself is used over 65 times. Um, and uh, it typically in Genesis... The seed or the offspring is the means by which the blessings of God are transmitted the, and the bridge between the world as it was then and as it is now, right? Because there's a real sense in Genesis that the generations are moving forward. And if you want to find out what your life is all about, look at how it all began, right? And we're connected to them through seed, through offspring. Now, who is the woman's offspring? <coughs> now, and this is a pretty interesting question. Okay, um, so, because think of it this way. As in English, the same thing maintains with the Hebrew word seed, zerah, or offspring. If I say, is that singular, a singular word, or a plural, like a collective plural word, right? Like I could say, it could be singular, like, like my son is my seed, right? But it could also be, Collective, as in all my kids are my seed. And notice I'm using the singular form, right? Or, or you might say, um, uh, you know, I, I've, I've got a lot of seed here that I'm going to scatter on the ground, 
Okay, so just by looking at that word, you can't really tell whether it's collective or singular. And obviously, right, uh, we know whom we would say this refers to, Jesus, right? We kind of want it to be singular, at least for a very straightforward interpretation. Um, some, now, some uh, taking this, uh, taking that fact, have, have suggested that this just refers to, like, humanity in general, okay? And so, like, not, not surprisingly, in the Jewish Publication Society translation of this verse, they render it, they shall bruise his heel, okay? Obviously taking seed as a collective noun there. Or, or the NET, the New English translation, which is a fabulous translation, has an amusingly neutral way of saying it. Her offspring will attack your head. So it's like, we're not going to make the call. We'll, we'll just call it the offspring. We're not even going to use a pronoun, right? <laughs> um, uh, now, now, what's the case for saying that it might be a righteous individual? Well, it is a singular pronoun that is used here. It is he in Hebrew, who. Good way to remember pronouns in Hebrew. Who is he, he is she, and me is who. Okay, uh, but who, he, right? <laughs> he shall bruise your head. And uh, so, so one could make the case there, right? Well, obviously it's an individual, but not so fast. Because the Hebrew can commonly use singular verbs, adjectives, um, pronouns to refer to collective, the collective use of the word seed or offspring. Okay? So it's like, ah, what do I choose? What do I choose? Um, and you can't really make, you, you can survey all the places that the Hebrew uses the word seed, the word zarah, which I indeed have done. And I can tell you that uh, the evidence is not heavy enough on either side to settle the argument here. So it could be that it's talking about offspring in general, the people of God in general here, okay? From whom, who comes? Jesus, right? And I don't think that should be that disturbing to us. Um, because, so my, what I'm saying is that either way you want to take it, that debate is actually not that important. So I kind of just wasted the last five minutes of your life because uh, either way, Genesis 3.15 truly is a proto-evangelium, a first announcement of the gospel, because it depicts the defeat of Satan at the hands, or we should we say the heel of the offspring of the woman, and we know how that happens. Um, uh, the he versus the they debate is merely a matter of specificity, right? How specific is this one verse being? Right? Either way, we know it's fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, if you're thinking in terms of like the whole Bible, like just having read the whole Bible, so canonically speaking, the ambiguity here might kind of be the point, right? Because as you go through Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament and stuff, right? You're expecting the people of God, the offspring of the woman, to defeat the serpent. But at every turn, they fail miserably to do so. And so Christ then succeeds uh, by assuming the role of the perfect person, the perfect image of God, the perfect seed or offspring of the woman, and succeeding where humanity has failed. So this would be the idea of Jesus as like the true Adam, or Jesus as the true offspring of the woman. So this is a very important verse, indeed, for starting to understand the concept of the people of God in the Bible. And then as Genesis rolls on, we get these really dark chapters, right? Genesis 
like, I guess it starts in three. So let's say three through 11, but here I'm talking about four through 11, okay? And you get these two lines of people, two uh, genetic lines, genealogical lines of people um, there. You get first the line of Cain, and you see all this bad stuff happening, right? Is Cain a good guy? Well, he murders his brother, okay? That's not a good thing. And then the other, and most of these, it's important to realize, are just names that were given. But when the text pauses, right? It's like, does it pause on good guys or bad guys? The line of Cain tends to pause on pretty much on bad guys. Like this guy, Lamech, for example, who is the world's first polygamist. So we can thank him for that. And he also has this really twisted sense of vengeance, okay? Contrast that with the line of, who's the other line that we see in Genesis 5? Seth, okay? Which is, of course, Adam and Eve's third child, because Abel is killed, right, by his brother Cain. And Seth, uh, in Seth, right, in his lineage, we learn, Genesis 4.26, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Uh, you also have there that chapter that all of us are challenged by, where people are living these impossibly long lives, okay, which seems to be a good thing. Uh, you also have, in verses 24, chapter 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And this is the line that Noah comes from. And when Noah's born, his dad says, out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Okay, so here we start to see the people of God becoming more and more defined. Now, one thing I think we need to be a little cautious about in these two lines here is that it is tempting to see Cain's line as like the wicked offspring of the serpent and Seth's line as the uh, righteous offspring of the woman. In case, in fact, one could even make a little bit of an argument from that from Genesis, right? Because typically in Genesis, uh, the stories of the wicked counterpart are told first and then the righteous. So we're told about Ishmael first and then Isaac. We're told about Esau first and then Jacob, if you want to refer to Jacob as righteous, of course. But right, so, um, and here we're told about Cain's line first and then Seth's. However, I would just want to point out that we're given a frustrating lack of detail about most of the individuals named in Genesis 4 and 5. And even that those that do receive comment, it's very, very little. So it's probably better to say that the story of Seth's line is told in such a way as to highlight the righteous in it, while the story of Cain's line is told in a way that highlights the wickedness in it. Unless we want to introduce the very unbiblical notion that simply being born into a genealogical line means you're automatically destined for hell. Um, so I think it's fair to, to read that that way. But as Genesis pans out, the concept of seed and genealogical descent becomes just this organizational concept that supports the claim of exclusivism, okay? So why is Genesis so concerned with seed and offspring? In order to tell us that God's blessing, right, the blessing we're looking for since chapter 3, which is his triumph over sin and his triumph over evil, will come and we'll, we will know where it comes from, right? So it comes from the line of Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and finally through Jacob's sons and Judah in particular, okay? God wants us to see where salvation is and where it is not, okay? 
So talking a little bit about that line then, about those who will become the people of God, um, we are introduced to Father Abraham, okay? Um, so, uh, and, and the, keep in mind that we're introduced to him right on the heels of Genesis 1 through 11, right? Where everything has just gotten worse and worse. And even like, uh, you know, so like all these things that our minds might go through, like how to fix the problem of sin ourselves, right? How about through long life and physical virility? Well, here you've got guys who are living hundreds of years old and all of them in the end meet the same fate, death, okay? What about the threat of judgment? I mean, God sends a flood. If I just punish him enough, sin will go away. Nope, right back into it after the flood. Uh, what about human formation and the and uh, achievement and the formation of great nations? Nope, you get the Tower of Babel. Rather, it comes from what it was at the very beginning, the promise of God, something that God's going to do through the offspring of the woman. And so the story of Abraham tells that story. It, and it develops through, through several movements. And I'm going to highlight the ones that are important for our topic. So you get the core promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And I want to point out that that last phrase, which interestingly, Paul in Galatians, when he cites that, he says that, that the scriptures preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham by telling him that. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, but here, even just in terms of the text, it is, uh, there is, uh, how do I explain this? Uh, it is grammatically different than the rest of the promise, right? So as to highlight it as the, as the climax. Like this, all this other stuff is going to happen, right? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. It's all going to serve the purpose of blessing all the families of the earth through you. But now, think about it, if, if you only know what is said so far, right, you might think that God's just going to do it through Abraham. Here, here's the promised seed right here, because all the yous in this verse are all singular yous. I'm going to do this for you, Abraham. Yeah, he says he's going to make him into a blessed, great nation, but all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abram directly, right? Um, well, it just takes a few verses to realize that the, his offspring are now going to be incorporated. And more and more so as the text goes on, it becomes very evident that this is something that's going to extend beyond Abram's life. So by verse 7, he is arriving in Canaan where he is at the Oak of Morah. And it says, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so then he builds an altar to the Lord. Okay, and then the next chapter, when he separates from his, his nephew Lot, because the land can't sustain both of them and all the stuff and all the people that they have, he tells him, God tells him, Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. And Here's another thing about your offspring, Abram. I will make them as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. 
okay? So it's not just his offspring, right? Because given what had already been said to him, all right, maybe it's just his son. Maybe it's just his son and his grandson. Nope, they're going to be so numerous that you can't even number them, okay? Um, the, 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 and the land will be theirs forever, okay? And, um, and speaking of the land, uh, in chapter 15, which I'm not going to touch on because it's not actually, doesn't actually move the story of the people that much far ahead, but the land promise is then solidified when God actually makes a covenant with, with Abram in Genesis chapter 15. That's one of those chapters in the Bible that you should definitely know what's there. If, I, if someone says, hey, what's in Genesis 15? You should be like, oh, the Abrahamic covenant, okay? That's when God makes that. So, so Abram's got this covenant with God. And then in chapter 17, God appears to him. And chapter 17 is super cool how it works. Uh, and I'll just highlight a few things about this. So when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appears to him and says, I am El Shaddai, which by the way, does not mean God Almighty, okay? It means something like God of the field or God of the stepland, which is a good name to have for your God if you are a nomadic herdsman, a shepherd, right? Like, but this family, right, knows their God as God of the field, El Shaddai, okay? Uh, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. And then Abraham falls on his face, and God says to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father. And notice the expansion here, okay? It's not just I will make you a great nation. You will be a father of what? Many nations, a multitude of nations. In fact, no longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, one thing to note here is that this is a good example of how often when the, someone is named in the Bible and an explanation for the name is given, okay, it's, that's not the actual meaning of the name, okay? Names are often based off puns, okay? Because father of uh, of a multitude of nations is Av Hamon, okay, father of a multitude. His name becomes Avraham. It sounds like that. It's a pun, okay, and that's going to become important when we talk about the name of God in a few minutes. But um, but notice that right. The scope of the covenant is expanded beyond national Israel, even here in Genesis, right. And so, as Christians, one question we want to ask is like. Like, at what point in redemptive history does Abraham actually become the father of many nations, right? It's not just those who call themselves Israel who are, who are called Israel, but many, a multitude. And a multitude is not a small amount, by the way, right? It doesn't mean only a few. Like, the entire people of Israel are called in the Bible the multitude of Israel, right? That's like thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. It's a lot of nations Abram will be the Abraham Abraham now, right? Will be the father of. And then he expands the covenant again. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so now note first, 
that it's not very specific here, but note, but note that the idea of kingship is introduced here, okay? And also notice that the covenant now is given to Abraham's offspring as an everlasting covenant. So Abraham, this thing that's between me and you, uh, now it's going to be between me and your offspring forever, okay? Anybody who could be counted as your offspring, Abrahamic covenant belongs to them as well. And then finally, in the last word here, you get what I like to call the heart of the covenant. I will be their God. The fuller version, of course, which you often find in the prophets is, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Okay? And that also is a very important phrase. Um, and then you get throughout the rest of this passage, what, what does he tell them to do next? He tells them to circumcise himself. And you kind of, kind of be like, well... That's kind of weird, God. Like, why do you care about that? But notice what he's just told him, right? He's just made a covenant with his offspring. So what, uh, so if the covenant is going to be with his seed, then the mark of the covenant goes on the thing that produces the seed. Do I need to get more graphic than this? Okay. But that's the significance of circumcision, right? Um, so, um, you also get in this chapter the focus on Isaac, right? That it's not going to be Ishmael, the kid you already have, but I'm actually going to miraculously give you a kid, and his name's going to be Isaac. Why is it going to be Isaac? Because you think it's so ridiculous, Abraham, that you decided to laugh. So I'm going to tell you to name your kid, he laughs, so that every time you say his name, you can remember how impossible you thought it was that I would do this. But indeed, I did do it, right? But that gives a little bit of attention, right? Because, like, clearly there's a focus on how important this one kid is. And yet the blessing is going to be not to all his offspring is the covenant, right? And he's going to be the father of many nations. So you've got this tension between the one and the many introduced here in Genesis 17. And then we get the remaining forefathers of Israel in Genesis. And we find that the promise is transmitted, this covenant Covenantal promise is transmitted through Isaac, not Ishmael, through Jacob, not Esau. And that's kind of like the pattern, right? Where one son is chosen and the other is not. Not necessarily chosen to go to heaven versus hell, but chosen to be the one through whom the promise is transmitted. And so when Jacob has all of his sons, 12 sons, you expect what? You expect one to be chosen and the others to be excluded. But notice that with the case of Isaac, as, we, as is the case in Genesis 17, and with the case of Jacob, that selection of one son to the exclusion of the others happens, is a decision that God makes. And he tells them that, right? Before he's born, he tells his parents that. But God never says that to Jacob, okay? Jacob instead decides to play favorites and you know, lavishes Joseph with all these blessings and stuff, while all of his sons are actually the ones through whom the covenant uh, promises are going to be carried forth. And so <clears throat> that's the, and now Joseph, of course, is a good guy in many respects. Kudos to Joseph. But the, in a sense, the story is not really that much about him, right? Because now you've got this this, what will become 12 tribes. This is apparently going to be this, na this great nation, and so the question is, who will be the king of this nation? Uh, who will be the most prominent of all, the first among equals, we might say? And so the story is, is if you, the, right, well, who are the, kid, the sons of, of Jacob? OK, 
okay? You get Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Those are the first four, okay? And so who, whom, if, given that they're all equals and that the firstborn is like the one who gets the, the big helping, right, of the inheritance, who do we expect that to be? Reuben, right? But what does he do? He sleeps with his father's concubine. Sorry, Reuben, you're out. Okay, and then you get Simeon and Levi as the next two up and, and they get taken out together because remember their sister gets raped by the, uh, the, the son of the ruler of the city of Shechem and Jacob doesn't do anything about it. So they take matters into their own hands, pull one of these numbers where they tell everybody, hey, we'll trade with you and, and intermarry with you, but you have to be circumcised first. And then when all the guys are like, oh, I can't move, they go in and they slaughter the whole city. And so they are taken out of the running. And so then you have the fourth son, Judah. And Judah looks like he's going to get taken out because he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, okay, uh, did I mention that this is, these people are chosen by grace? Okay. Um, but he ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. And so you're like, all right, I guess he's kind of out of the picture. But then he steps back up when, it, it, when things get hot, right? And Joseph is about to, you know, is pulling his, his stuff in Egypt. And he's, he's trying to, uh, to keep Benjamin there and everything. And Judah comes up and he's like, no, take me instead. I, you know, I, 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 I'm, um, you want me instead. Uh, this will devastate my father, right? And he's willing to become essentially a slave of this Egyptian ruler. Um, and so as a result of that, Judah is put on top. And we end up um, in Genesis 49, when Jacob is giving his kind of deathbed blessings to his son, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay. And so by the time we're at the end of Genesis, we realize, you know, we get a picture of the picture is coming more and more into focus as to who the people of God will be. And we see that Judah will be the ruler of them. And that, of course, is going to be the main topic for next week as well. At this point, let me just pause and see if anybody has any questions so far. So the, uh, the Jewish people today then um, should be still considered as a special people of God because that covenant goes on forever and the land of Israel, everlasting possession, that really is their land. So you did want to ask this question right away that I... Uh, well, I no, it that. came up in the text. <laughs> Everlasting yeah. possession, and you said it would go on from ever. Yeah. So I think what I will say in the rest of the talk, will put it a little bit more into perspective, okay? okay? But um, uh, um, I think the text... So I, it's very clear, not to uh, uh, steal the thunder of the second part of this talk, that... Um, the Gentiles are integrated into the family of Abraham, okay? That they become, that those who are of faith in Jesus, right, become, as Paul says, the offspring of Abraham. They're grafted into that tree, even to the extent of ethnic Jewish people being, being taken out of the tree because of their unbelief, okay? Um, now, I do think, however, that, uh, that God... Uh, does hold out a future for ethnic Israel, okay? Um, but there are different ways to be specific. There are different conclusions that one can draw as to specifically what that means, 
Okay, and uh, Christians are going to disagree as to whether that means that uh, ethnically Jewish people have an unconditional right to the land of Israel, uh, whether or not the future promises include being brought back to that land. And and a lot of that is going to to depend on how you are willing to read a lot of the prophetic promises in the Old Testament. Okay, for those who are very insistent that, no, it says they come back to this land and it says this people do, right? And want to just, and, and want to maintain a, uh, and say that's what it meant then and the text always means what it meant, right? Um, and I don't think, you know, that might, uh, there, there's different ways to, to understand even that. Um, they're going to be very insistent, no, this, this must happen in the future. It hasn't, clearly has not, been fulfilled totally yet, but it will be in the future. Um, whereas others will say, no, the Gentiles are incorporated, and yeah, God has a plan, future plan for Israel, but we're essentially uh, equal in the eyes of God, and we are all his people in the exact same way, and we will be, um, and the the inheritance of the land is essentially kind of like the theme that I looked at last time, right? The temple, the new Jerusalem, the ultimate home of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, What I do think that we need to be a little bit careful of, and I do feel kind of strongly about this, because in case you're wondering, I'm kind of just like laying out the positions without really saying what what I'm that committed to, right? Because I personally don't think the text is that clear, okay? I think when Jesus came on the scene in the first century, there were a lot of things about the Old Testament that it turns out that the people of God had been misunderstanding, okay? And it would not surprise me if when he returns, the same thing will be the case. So I want to be a little bit humble about that. But one thing I do want to say is that um, though the Abrahamic, I think it's wrong to think of covenants along the grid of, is this one unconditional or is this one conditional? In other words, this one... Uh, This one matters what we do, and we get to enjoy it. And this one, regardless of what we do, it's ours, okay? I think there are elements of of both, you know, promise and obligation in all the biblical covenants. And the way that I see the scriptures put together, the promise of the land, the physical land in the Middle East, is nowhere, uh, is not an unconditional land. It is theirs forever, But even in Old Testament Israel, they have to obey the law of Moses to be there, right? And they didn't. And now what is the covenant that's in force? The new covenant. And are the people of Israel, the nation that is called Israel right now, are they in obedience to the new covenant under Jesus Christ, under the lordship of Jesus Christ? No. And so I don't know, I I don't want to say that, 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 uh, that Jewish people have an unconditional, like they might have a right to the land. Okay. But I wouldn't say that the script, that it's because the Bible says that they do. That's my, that's my position on it. Essentially, if you want to talk about the, the nation of Israel, the Jewish state in the Middle East as, um, as Israel, all right, if we're going to draw some kind of equivalence there, I think what you have is something akin to what you would have under uh, one of the wicked kings in the Old Testament. And I don't mean to be too harsh. I'm not saying like Jewish people are evil or anything like that, at least no more evil than I am in my sinful nature, right? Uh, been redeemed in Christ, so I'm very thankful for that. But 
um, you know, if, if it, so if you were a prophet in the time of, say, King Manasseh, right, what would your, would you be saying, oh, all your policies, Manasseh, we need to get behind and we need to do it because you've got the Abrahamic covenant behind you. No, you'd be saying, repent, turn to the Lord. You're not worshiping God because even though they're reading the first two thirds of this book, right, Jesus told us that if you don't have the son, you don't have the father. You're not worshiping the father if you're not worshiping him through the son, okay? That may have been the case in the Old Testament when those things weren't that clear, but it is clear now. And so that's kind of like, you know, part of the ingredients that I want to put there. I'm not saying that it's not right for them to be in the land. I'm not saying it's not right for them to defend themselves. Um, what I am saying is that if we are going, if people want to support Israel, they should do so on grounds other than um, an unconditional right that they have to the land and that that somehow obligates Christians to get behind any and every uh, Israeli government policy. That's my thought on that. <laughs> so there's some, uh, there's a, I have a bunch of question marks about it, but yeah, essentially that's the second half of the talk. Let's all go home. Okay, shall we continue? All right, nice, nice, nice. Okay, um, so the people of Israel, the tribes, right, they eventually end up in Egypt, okay? And, um, and there's an important thing you learn about what, they, what it means for them to be the people of God in Egypt. So they go in and initially it's like, it's totally like what God is doing, right? In fact, God tells, tells Abraham this is all going to happen. He tells him that in Genesis 15, um, and they go in and it's a, a mutually beneficial situation between them and the Egyptians. But then eventually you get to Exodus 1.8 where there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay. And, um, and this king becomes fearful of them because, hey, they've been fruitful and have multiplied and they're numerous. And so let's enslave them. Let's make them as slaves. Let's try to institute some population control around here, right? Kill the male children who are born. Terrible oppression, okay? And we know, uh, I presume you know the story of Moses. Moses is kind of one of them, but he's raised in Pharaoh's court, right? Because his parents refused to kill him. Okay? And he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, but he has a lot of affinity to his fellow Israelites and he sees one being mistreated by an Egyptian and he kills that Egyptian and he has to flee into the wilderness of Midian. And it is there where he is shepherding his flock on a mountain okay, where he comes across what? A burning bush. And it is the angel of Yahweh appearing to him in this bush. And we learn something very important about God's relationship to his people here. So it says that um, when, when Yahweh saw that Moses had turned aside to see, he called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And, he, and then he identifies himself as the God of this specific people. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God, right? I think about the last time God had appeared in fire, right? That's the formation of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 15. And then God tells him what he wants him to do, right? I want you to be my man. You, you are to be the guy to go to Pharaoh and lead my people out of Egypt and give them the land that I've promised, 
Okay, now think about this, right? How, how long approximately has it been that the people of Israel have been in Egypt now? 400 years, okay? 400 years. That's like, like 400 years ago is like, you know, 1624, okay? In fact, maybe 430 years, depending on which biblical reference you're looking at. So maybe the late 1500s, okay? Think about what it would be like if no one had heard of God since, had, had heard from God since then, okay? And instead, you're slaves of the most powerful theocracy in the entire world. And they're worshiping their gods. They got these great temples and everything. There's all these feasts, all these priests. And that's been life as far back as you can remember. And maybe your parents have told you stories about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Maybe you kind you know, like, but... What is, and, and, and by the way, this God who promises that, that we haven't heard from in all this time, right? This, this El Shaddai, this God of the field. What is he next to like Ammon, Ray? What is he next to Newt, the goddess of the sky and all these, and Horus, right? And all these other Egyptian deities, okay? And, and now this God is appearing in a burning bush to this old guy and he's telling him, go and deliver my people. And so Moses has got a few questions of assurance, he says, first of all, I don't know if I can do this. So his first question is, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And I love God's answer to him. What's God's answer to him? He ignores the question. He dodges the question. He says, I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you. Once you've done this, you'll worship God on this mountain. So eh, wrong question. Doesn't matter who you are, Moses. It matters that I am with you. And notice the wording there, ehia imak. That word ehia is going to be important. I am with you, okay? And then Moses has got the second question. Well, if I come to the people and tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they're like, well, what's his name? What am I supposed to say? So notice Moses' first question is, who am I? Now the second question is, who are you? Okay, and what does God say to him? He says, you want to know my name? And he tells him, Echia Asher Echia. We just heard that word. I am. I am with you is what he just said. And now he says, Echia Asher Echia. And if you look in your footnote in the Bible, you'll see that that verbal form, Echia, can also be translated not I am, but I will be, okay, which is often pointed out. Now, what would be the significance of translating it I will be? Well, how did God just use it? I will be with you. Okay? And what's this like, ehye, asher, ehye, I, I will be whom I will be, or I will be what I will be, or that I will be, however you want to translate it. Why would he say it like that? Well, it turns out that this is actually a known grammatical feature that interestingly exists in English as well as it exists in Hebrew. Okay? And this is called an idem per idem construction, I-D-E-M-P-E-R-I-D-E-M. -E -E so if, if I'm going out and I'm all mad and my wife's like, where are you going? Uh, I'm going where I'm going, okay? When are you going to be back? I'll be back when I'll be back, okay? What is, the, what is the force of that? It doesn't matter. All you need to know is I'll be back. No more. It's a question stopper and reinforcing what it said. Okay. 
Echia Asher Echia, I will be with you, period, end of the discussion. You want to know who I am? That's who I am. I am the God who is with his people, okay? And, and note, I am or I will be, okay, is not the name of God. And it even says that in this, so we, should, we shouldn't call God like I am, okay? Remember how I said names are based off of puns. That's not what Yahweh means, okay? Yahweh probably technically means something like he causes to be, okay? But rather, it sounds like it. Yahweh sounds like Echia, okay? And so, and, and notice how, uh, back up to the previous slide here, Elaine. Notice how he, says, how he says that, right? He says, say to the people of Israel, Echia has sent me to you, okay? But then he says, and say this, Yahweh, which is not Echia, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And by this, I will be remembered throughout all generations, okay? So, so here's an important thing we learned, that God is with his people. And that is an extremely important part of what it means to be the people of God. Uh, now, Elaine, I'm going to skip forward a little bit. I'm going to skip forward to the next page where it says, at Sinai. So we're going to pick up in Exodus 19, 4 through 6. So, so think about this, right? Like, remember what I said, how the Israelites must, must have been thinking about God at this time. Now, what does God do? He comes, he smashes the, God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt, right? It's, it's no contest. With all of the plagues, the Egyptians are coming to Moses, like, please make it stop, right? Tell your God we're sorry, right? And then he goes and he drowns Pharaoh's army in the, in the flood, right? This God who had, you know, what had he done in the past? What were his miraculous deeds in the past? I mean, it's a big deal. Okay, I mean, you could go back to the flood. Okay, I'll grant you that. But in terms of the family of Abraham and what he's done, he's given some children in their old age. He's overcome barrenness. Now he's parting the Sea of Reeds and drowning the Egyptian army. Okay, this is a significant move forward in who God is and who he is for his people. And now they're at Mount Sinai. And the mountain is on fire and the earth is shaking and the people are begging that God won't speak to them audibly again because their faces are going to melt off. Okay. And he tells them, we're going to make a covenant here. I bore you on eagle's wings. And now if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, there's your conditionality now that's slapped onto the Abrahamic covenant in the Sinai covenant, John. Um, <laughs> you shall be my treasured possessions among all people. So treasured possessions, just what it sounds like. The, the segula, the, uh, it is like a treasure, something you value very much. And Israel has called this a bunch of times in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, uh, Kingdom of priests. That's an interesting thing. Here's what you're going to be if you obey my covenant. You're going to be my treasured possession. And, you're, and, and notice, but it's not just you're going to be my, I've got work for you to do, priestly work. And all of you are going to be priests. Now, the sons of Aaron's are going to be the priest priests, right? But all of you, in a sense, are going to be priests. And as we look through the law, right, and through the life of Israel, this is done by example to other nations, right? So acting as priests to the world, this is the ideal. By proclamation, by telling them of Yahweh, by sacrificial intercession, they are the ones who will have the temple. 
and by preserving the word of God, right? They receive the oracles of the word of God and their scribes preserve it. And, um, and a good example of this is something we find in Deuteronomy 4, okay? What the people of God are tasked with doing. And this is part of what I like to call the missionary direction of the Old Testament. That Israel's purpose is not just to be inward focused, but it's to be outward focused. And he says, I've taught you these statutes and rules as Yahweh my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking. That you should do them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them that it will be uh, your wisdom your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise, a wise and understanding people. And not only are they going to say that about you, but look at what they're going to say about God for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh, our God is to us whenever we call upon him, right? Like they're going to see you. They should see you and they should thirst for God. Okay. And they're going to be a holy nation. In order to do this, they must be set, a, set apart. Now, I want to also want to note, remember we talked about how all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant, you already have the notion of other nations being part of what God is going to do through Israel. Well, even now, okay, an unspecified number of Israelites, as they are standing at Mount Sinai, and then in the Deuteronomy passage that I just read, as uh, in the plains of Moab, as they are standing there receiving the covenant, there are already a good number of Gentiles among them uh, having become part of Israel. Um, in Exodus 12, 38, right as the, they're about to leave Egypt, it tells us a mixed multitude also went up with them and they had very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Okay, so this mixed multitude is also part of who receives the covenant there. Okay. Also, you get uh, indications of this that um, uh, circum uh, like when the, uh, when the Passover is given in Exodus 12, 30, uh, 43 through 49, um, when the Passover is given, right, it is for the children of Israel, but any circumcised foreigners or sojourners who are with you, as long as they're circumcised, may eat of the Passover, okay? That is outward focused. And... Um, and then one thing I, I really like in Deuteronomy in chapter 29, as they're renewing the covenant in the plains of Moab, he says, you are standing today, all of you, before Yahweh, your God. Um, and of course, all these Israelites are mentioned, your little ones, wives, and the sojourner who's in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into a sworn covenant with Yahweh, your God, which he's making with you today. Okay, so the sojourners among them are also included as part of what is going on. Now, how does this go for Israel? Poorly. Because of compromising sin, okay? God's people must be a holy nation, okay? But already by the time they're at Mount Sinai, there's been at least three incidents, okay? There was panic at the Sea of Reeds where they're like, why did we even leave Egypt, Moses? Okay, and then as soon as they're through that, there's grumbling for food in the wilderness of Sinai in Exodus chapter 16. That's when God first provides the manna and the quail. Then there's quarreling with Moses about water at Massah and Meribah in chapter 17. Then you have the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And uh, we know what happens there, right? And, and Moses comes down the mountain and he smashes the tablets 
And he says, and, and God tells Moses when he's like, you're not going to be happy when you see what he sees. I'm God, so I know what they're doing. <laughs> so I've seen this people, behold, they're stiff necked. Now, therefore, let me alone, he tells Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I can consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Hey, Moses, you're an offspring of Abraham. I could do it. Okay. We could just start over. It could be the new Abraham. Now, like, and Moses is like, oh no, no, please no. And so Moses starts interceding for his people. And as part of this intercession, one of the things uh, that, that he tells them is, look, you have sinned. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin through my intercession. He doesn't do this through sacrifice. And it says he returned to Yahweh and said, alas, the people has sinned a, a great sin. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now if you forgive their sin, and then he doesn't even end the sentence, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you've written. Like if your people whom you have committed yourself to God are not going to complete this journey into the promised land. If you're not going to give them what you've promised to, then let me be with them. I don't even want to be a part of it. And one could say like, like what, why is Moses having to go through this? Like God does spare them. Like, why is he having to like grovel like this and say this? Well, I think part of the answer is that God is teaching us what intercession looks like, what it looks like to have God say, I am going to stand in furious judgment against people's sins and us to say, Lord, get on our knees and say, Lord, please know, please bring these people to repentance, make these people right with you, um, uh, uh, cast off their iniquities, um, uh, let them turn for us, right? Let them turn to Christ. And then they're told to depart. So God tells Moses, depart, go up from here. And notice how God's still referring to them. You and the people whom you've brought up out of Israel. So this idea of God being with them, right? This is compromised now because of their sin. Because normally it's the people I brought up out of Egypt. But no, it's the people you brought up out of Egypt, Moses, to the land that I swore to their forefathers. Um, go but I will not be among you lest I consume you on the way for your stiff necked people. And then Moses makes a final intercession, which really underscores this idea of God is with his people. And that's what it means to be his people. Um, God ultimately ends up assuring him, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Okay, your, your intercession has been effective. And Moses in response to that is like, really, are you sure? Because if your presence does not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth? That's true for Israel, and it's even more so for the church. Why are we distinct? What makes us special? Is it that we're good planners? Is it that we're really responsible? Is, that, is, it, is it something in us? No, it's that God is among us. That's the only thing that makes us unique. That's what makes us special, okay? Um, and now this scene of rebellion and then intercession repeats itself again and again in the wilderness, whether it's at, as soon as they leave Sinai at Taverah in Numbers 11, or mutiny by Miriam and Aaron in Numbers 12, or the report of the spies in Numbers 13, or rebellion again 
in Numbers 14, where, the pe where that generation is denied entry into the Promised Land, or the rebellion of the Korahites in Numbers 16, and, and even Moses, right, who fails to uphold God as holy in the eyes of the people and is not himself allowed to enter into the Promised Land, right? You get the idea that sin is going to be a major problem. So they've got this covenant through which they can enjoy the Abrahamic blessings, but they're not able to keep it, okay? They're falling on their face at square one, as any of us would, okay? And so you've got these covenantal warning passages like Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 through 30, which talk about like how things are going to go if you obey me and I will bless you. But not if, but when you stop and turn to other gods, here's what's going to happen. I will cast you out of my presence. <coughs> I will scatter you among the nations. I will exile you. And, um, and, and, and even... Even uh, Joshua, after the people have taken the land at the end, right? He's committing them once again to, 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 to the Lord. And they're like, all that God's commanded us, we will do. And he's like, yeah, right. Probably not. Uh, you, <laughs> right? It, there's always this skepticism that they're going to be able to do what God has called them to do. Okay. Uh, Elaine, I'm going now to the second half of page 12. So we're not going to read that Deuteronomy quote in interest of time. So... This, these themes are going now to extend throughout the Old Testament that we've seen so far. Human beings are called to represent God's rule over all creation. Our sin makes it impossible to do that. Uh, yet through the chosen offspring, God will destroy the serpent, uh, um, the offspring of the woman and then the offspring of Abraham. The blessing brought by this offspring will extend to all the families of the earth. Uh, the collective offspring of Abraham is given land as their place to dwell with God, but will only experience that blessing if they obey their covenant. And at every juncture, the collective offspring of Abraham prove un uh, in, un incapable of doing this. And um, they're, they're God's presence among his people, the, the, the heart of the covenant, I will be their God, they will be my people, is constantly compromised by sin. Okay. Now, an important aspect of this covenant that we start to see, and we see more and more the further in you go into the, into the Old Testament, is the incorporation of uh, all of the families of the earth into the people of Israel, okay? Especially in the prophetic promise of hope. So very clear passage of this in this. Uh, a bunch of them occur. We're going to pick a few out of Isaiah. So in Isaiah 2, Okay, and notice here, Israel is the center of this channel of blessing. It says, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This passage, by the way, is also found in the book of Micah, interestingly. 
And then another really interesting passage I find is Isaiah chapter 19. Check this out. So Isaiah is writing like as the northern kingdom of Israel is being destroyed in 722 BC and then in the aftermath of that. And if you were to ask who are the big baddies in terms of the nations, who is he going to say? Who are the people of that day going to say? They're going to say, well, Egypt, of course, because they're always on the uh, naughty list. Uh, for, you know, having us as slaves. And now they're, now they've taken, now Assyria's come in and taken our people out of the land. And now they're holding them just like the Egyptians did. So the Assyrian empire, this mighty Assyrian empire and the Egyptians. Okay. And look what is said here about both of these groups. Okay. This is one of those on that day passages. These, okay. So first, and it, notice how it eases you into it. In that day, there will be an altar to Yahweh in the midst of the land of Egypt. Huh. And a pillar to Yahweh at its border. Okay. Y y Yahweh is worshipped here. It will be a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and will deliver them. And Yahweh will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to Yahweh and perform them. And Yahweh will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to Yahweh, and they, he will listen to their pleas for mercy, and he will heal them. Now notice this. If you put it on a map, right? Egypt is down here, northern Africa. Then you have Sinai, and then you go up here, and up here is Assyria. What's in the middle? Israel, right? In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt and Egypt into Assyria. If you're going to build that highway, you're going through Israel, right? And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So the Assyrians are like, hey, Egyptians, come on over, right? Like, we're going, we're going to worship the Lord. And the Assyrians are like, we're all in, we're coming. What are you talking about, Isaiah? In that day, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, Picture the pie chart or Mercedes-Benz logo, whatever you like, right? A third, Israel, Egypt, Assyria. What a blessing in the midst of the earth whom Yahweh the host has blessed, saying, blessed be, and notice he's going to start calling them stuff that he's only really called Israel. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Notice, Israel not diminished, but the other nations exalted to become his people. And then in chapter 25, On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of, of aged wine well-refined. You guys like bone marrow? I love it. You microwave it. It's really easy to make. And he will swallow up on this mountain. Remember, Israel is the channel of this blessing. The covering that is cast over all peoples. And what is that covering that's going to get covered up? The veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Oh, Paul, that's where you got it for 1 Corinthians 15. He will swallow up death forever. And Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces. <clears throat> Revelation 21. 
and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Okay. So this is the attitude that the prophet, you know, teaches Israel to have towards these other nations, right? Participating in this great eschatological feast. And yet what are the Israelites attitude towards these other nations, particularly Assyria? Well, we're told in a fun little book called Jonah, right? Jonah's told, go cry out to, you know, how, how, how enthusiastic is he about his mission to go and preach to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria at that time, okay? Not very. Um, in fact, all he wants is their destruction because the, those are the wicked people up there, okay? And so now, now one way, one corrective of this that I think is important to note um, is how is the idea of the one who succeeds where the nation has failed. So, right, Israel has this great mission to the nations, the great kingdom of priests, right, all that stuff. Um, but their sin gets in the way of them doing that. Their inability to keep the covenant. Now they are objects of judgment themselves. And we see, and so God is going to appoint one who succeeds where they fail. Now, sometimes one of the theological perspectives I mentioned before, right, where, where Israel just becomes the church, like there's no, no thinking about national Israel anymore. It is the church now, right? What is that sometimes derisively called? Replacement theology, okay? This, I think, is the real replacement theology, I'm not a huge fan of the, 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 you know, the, the plain idea of replacement theology in terms of the church totally replaces Israel. I think I'd rather think of it in terms maybe of fulfillment. That's a little bit better. Um, but, but replacement, the, Jesus replaces Israel. How about that? In doing what Israel was called to do but never could. And I think you have two stellar examples, both of which are, are characters well known to us. The first is Isaiah's servant of the Lord. Now, the servant of the Lord appears in a number of servant songs in Isaiah between chapters 42 and 53, okay? And initially, who is the servant of the Lord? Well, let's find out. So here's how these songs begin. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation, to the nations. Now, before your mind goes too quickly to Jesus, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the, my hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness, right? And we're like, yes, that's definitely Jesus, definitely Jesus. And in a sense it is, but look where he goes later in this chapter in verse 18. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? So among all these blind nations and deaf nations in the earth, you want to know who's really blind? This one whom I've appointed as my servant. And you're kind of like, all right, probably not Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, or deaf as the messenger whom I send. Doesn't hear me, doesn't see what needs to be seen. Who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of Yahweh? He sees many things, but doesn't observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. 
Yahweh was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and to make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, right? Because they're already experienced the, seeing the judgment of God. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this and will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh against whom we sinned in whose ways they would not walk and whose law they would not obey? Okay, welcome to the Old Testament. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So that's the problem, right? That the servant, great mission, light to the nations, got it. Uh, I'm not very good at that, though. Okay? And so what's the solution? The solution comes in the servant song we were introduced to towards the end in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, verse 12. Okay? Where we learn of a, one who now takes up this mantle of the servant. The servant who acts wisely. And shall be exalted. <clears throat> this servant who is marred beyond human resemblance. Who will sprinkle every nation. That's a very nazah. That's a word that is used in the atonement rituals of Israel. He's going to do that for all the nations. And in verse 5. Uh, beginning in verse uh, 5. Surely he, he. And now notice here. Okay. If we're saying that the people are the ser servant. This does not work. Because your eyes need to be on the pronouns. Because surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So if the servant is Israel, okay, can't be the he because the our, the us here is Israel, right? Right? If he's bearing, this is someone distinct from the one whose sorrows are being born. This is another individual. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was, uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. We, the failed servant, okay, he. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay. Jesus taking up the role of the servant of Yahweh where Israel has failed. Being the one to truly be the light to the nations. The other character that's a lot like this is the son of man in Daniel chapter 7. This indeed is the chapter where Jesus gets that most, his favorite way of referring to himself. So Daniel's got this vision. There's these four beasts and those beasts are terrible. Okay. And then he has this vision where the ancient of days, God, the father, right? Takes his seat. The books are open. The fourth beast is killed. The other ones, their dominion is taken away. And he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so that's the idea of the son of man, right? We can see, and so when Jesus claims that, right, he's the one who, who will receive that dominion, 
okay? And, and reign along with the Ancient of Days, being a son of man, a, a human being himself, the God-man, okay? But in the context of Daniel 7, notice this. Daniel actually asks, hey, what does all this stuff mean? And he's not given all the details, but he is told this. He says, my spirit was anxious. The visions of my head alarmed me. No kidding, Daniel. And I approached one of those who stood there and asked him in the, tru uh, the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. I thought it was the Son of Man who was supposed to. And so one could read Daniel 7 and say, well, the Son of Man is the saints of the Most High, the people of God. And so what's Jesus doing saying, hey, this is me? Because again, you have this idea that Jesus succeeds where the people of God have failed. That we who are called to be the Son of Man are not because of our sin, and there is one who can truly fulfill this role. Okay, As I said, that's a true replacement theology. Can we call it that, Walt? Is that all right for that? All right, all right, good. So uh, then you get to the New Testament, and you get to the Gospels, right? And it's very clear that on the one hand, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who's come to fulfill the promises made to the fathers, Okay, uh, but it's also very clear that very essential to Jesus's mission is the inclusion of all nations. And so Matthew, for example, begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, the son of Abraham, Lachaim, very Jewish. Okay, um, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And again, if you're just reading Matthew and you don't know anything yet, right? You're like, oh, his people, of course, Israel. He's going to save Israel of their sins. Yay, yay. And then who are the first to come and bow down before him? Uh, the, the, the Jewish people dwelling in Beth Bethlehem? The Jewish king, Herod? No. The priesthood? No. These wise men, these magoi from the east coming and bowing before Jesus and presenting him with gifts. And there's other stuff in Matthew, but go, if you go to the very ending, where does it, Matthew eventually end up? Go therefore into Israel and make disciples of only Israel. Oh wait, no. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The command for the, right? That Jesus' disciples are not just the people of Israel, but all nations. Mark 2, right? So Mark, here's an interesting passage. Mark 11, so Jesus enters Jerusalem, right? On a donkey, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, right? And, uh, and then right between that and him going and cleansing the temple, driving out the money changers, he uh, comes to Bethany and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and he's like, ah, oh, figs. We're allowed to eat the figs now. It's not Genesis 2, just kidding. Um, but he sees the fig tree and it's in leaf and he wants to find fig on, figs on it. And when he comes, he finds nothing but leaves, no figs, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it, right? Right as he's entered Jerusalem for this final week and as he's about to go into the temple, okay? 
Uh, in Luke 2, right? Also, very Jewish start, right? In the beginning, the Magnificat, what Mary sings as she gets the announcement. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Very Genesis sounding, his offspring forever, right? Zechariah's prophecy, okay? This is the father of John the Baptist who's just been struck mute, okay? He can finally open his mouth and what does he say? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he's visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in his servant David, okay? Very, very Israelite. Okay? And yet, the first teaching that Jesus does is in the synagogue of Nazareth in chapter 4. And how does that go? Well, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah. He opens to chapter 61, right? And he's talking about how the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? And all this stuff. Closes it. He says, today this scripture has been, been fulfilled in your hearing. And the people are like, did I miss something? Isn't this Joseph's son, the carpenter's son? And Jesus is like, let me tell you something. No prophet is without honor, is, 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 no prophet is without, has honor in his own hometown, okay? Um, and let me remind you of something. Many widows were there in Israel during Elijah's famous 39-month drought, and he was sent to only one in 1 Kings 17, the widow of Zarephath. In Sidon, not Israel. And there. And in Elijah's day, there were many lepers who needed to be cured, and only one was. You remember who that was? Naaman the Syrian, 2 Kings chapter 5. What's Jesus doing? He's calling God's attention to his love for Gentiles. And it that's how much it takes for them to say, All right, you're going over the cliff. Fortunately, they don't succeed, right? But that's the very first thing. And then you get to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Jesus is the true light, comes into the world. He's in the world. The world is made through him, but it didn't know him. He comes to his own, and his own people don't receive him. But who all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it's no longer who are my people. It's who receives me. That's who becomes the children of God, the people of God. And another cool passage in John is in chapter 10. This is the good shepherd, right? I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And you could think about maybe some Jewish folks standing around being like, yep, that's about time. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And guess what? I've got other sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be forever the church and then ethnic Israel. Oh, wait, no. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Okay. And then in the book of Acts, as the gospel goes out. Okay. Uh, very interestingly here, right? Uh, the disciples are like, all right, Jesus, you've been raised from the dead. We've been with you for 40 days. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says in response to them, and this is a frustrating passage, right? Because one could say, well, he doesn't say I'm not going to, right? He doesn't rebuke them for saying that. So maybe one day God will give the land back to ethnic Israel. But on the other hand, one could say, well, here's his answer. His answer instead diverts attention off that question. So it doesn't really give you an answer to that, I think, either way you look. But notice what he does say. 
He says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And who's in Jerusalem? The Jewish folks. And then in Samaria, oh, Samarian, they're hardly even Jewish. Those guys are jerks. And then to the ends of the earth. And that's what Acts is all about, right? The Holy Spirit going all the way to the Gentiles. Um, your first taste, real taste of that is, is Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, right? Where this guy is, is uh, reading the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. And he's like, who's this about? And Philip's like, well, isn't that a funny question that you ask? And, um, and this actually has a really interesting passage in Isaiah behind it. And this is another one of these great incorporation of the Gentiles passages. Thus says Yahweh, this is Isaiah 56, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, right? Because eunuchs don't have a lot of those. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, and the four, so not only is he a eunuch, he's Ethiopian. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath does not profane it, holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted by me on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. That might sound familiar because that's one of the things that Jesus was upset about when he drove the money changers out, right? This is what this court of the Gentiles is supposed to be. And you've made it a marketplace. I want the Gentiles coming to me. I don't want them coming here and getting shaken down for money, okay? And then the, the big one is, of course, in Acts chapter 10, where Peter uh, is praying on the roof and um, he's... And he has a vision three times he has it of all these unclean animals coming down out of heaven and then being told, kill, eat. And he's like, God, I don't think you got the memo. You don't want us eating stuff like this. And God's response to him is what God has made called clean, do not call common. And now that we've put you in that mindset, Peter, there's going to be some guys coming and they're not Jewish and you need to tell them the gospel. And sure enough, there's this Roman centurion who sent some servants to hear what Peter has to say. Peter goes to them, shares the gospel with them. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They speak in tongues. Then they get baptized. And Peter goes off rejoicing, reports what has happened to Jerusalem. And they say, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And this is essentially what Paul's life eventually becomes like, right? Um, creating these churches, planting these churches where you have mixed elements of Jewish people and Gentile people and working out all the messiness that that is about. And so much of his letters and so much of his ministry and acts is about that. I've talked about that in my biography of Paul session. So you could kind of go there if you want to check that out. But there, there's a wonderful passage in Ephesians that uh, really reveals Paul's heart for this. Um, and so he, this is Ephesians 2 through, th through 3, through the beginning of 3. So in 2.11, he says, Remember, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Remember, at one time, you were separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And he talks about how he's abolished the, the, the law of commandments and ordinances so that he can make one new man. Again, not two men that will endure alongside one another, but one new man in place of the two, making peace and might reconcile us to God, both of us, in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. Okay. So then you are no longer right. Cause he just says you were, you once were these things. He said, he just said that now you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Um, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, okay? So, right, you, you once were strangers to the covenants of promise, but now you are still strangers, just less strangers? No, you are strangers no more. You are fellow heirs of the promises, fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. And I won't read this whole section here because I'm aware of the time, but look at what he says in verse six. He's talking about this mystery that has been revealed to him. And that is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That it is not, in other words, through the law of Moses that we gain access to the promises of Abraham, but it's through the new covenant, the blessing of Christ. Okay, uh, the uh, faith and faith in his name that we gain access to the, to the promises. The other big passage in the New Testament in Paul that really paints this is uh, the one that I mentioned before in my answer to John's question about the, where Paul depicts the family of God as an olive tree. Okay, and uh, basically what he says is he says, that here's an olive tree, and this olive tree is the family of God, right? The offspring of Abraham. And the natural branches, who are the Jewish people, right? They are, now that Christ has come, right? A lot of them don't believe in him. And because of that, they are broken off of this tree. And you, who are a branch from a wild olive tree, You've been grafted onto that. It always impresses me that Paul knows about that in the first century. I'm like, how did they do that? Uh, you horticulturists might know more about that than I do. But, um, right? And so that's the idea. You are unnatural branches grafted in. And don't be prideful towards those branches. Don't say, ha you guys stink. You don't know your own scriptures. Blah, 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 blah. No, don't be prideful, right? Because you're only here through the grace of God, right? And here's the thing. Go, go down to verse 23. Let's go to the slide with 23. If they do not continue in their unbelief, and here's that future for Israel that I was talking about, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Like they belong here more than you do in some sense. Lest you be wise in your own sight, right? You know, oh, we're part of the olive tree. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
And notice here, he's still maintaining an identity for ethnic Israel. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, okay? In a way, perhaps, that it hasn't upon other peoples. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, right? God actually has a plan, okay? And when that time comes, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't think that means all Israelites who have ever lived. I think probably the best interpretation is that this is a few, at the very least, a future mass exodus into Christ. That would be an exodus, I guess you'd call it. Uh, a coming to Christ among Israel. Um, you know, people go back and forth as to how extensive that would be worldwide. Um, and in this way, he says, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Then the next two verses are very important. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, right? They, they don't tend to embrace Christ. Notable exceptions, all right, duly noted, okay, uh, but as regards the, the gospel, for the most part, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Notice that still maintains at the point of Paul writing Romans 11. Okay? Uh, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. All right, now I'm going to, Elaine, I'm going to skip the part on the new covenant here. <clears throat> okay? And I just want to note, few things out of the final vision of Revelation, okay? Um, one way in which the book of Revelation depicts this, 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 this uh, bringing of the Gentiles in is through its numerology, okay? Uh, and I think I touched on this in the temple, but I will, I, when I talked about the temple, but to refresh your memory, okay, the number 12 is very significant in the book of Revelation. And what do you think the number 12 might represent? the people of God, 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, right? That's very purposeful. So when the woman clothed with the sun appears in Revelation 12, 1, she is wearing a crown of guess how many stars on her head? 12. She represents the people of God. And then the, 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 the people, the saints in heaven are actually given a number twice in Revelation. And it's probably this in chapter 7, but it's definitely this in chapter 14, that this represents all of the people of God, okay? And what is, a and what is that number? It's 144,000, 12 times 12 times 1,000, okay? And then when the new heavens and the new earth show up, right, and you see the, the, the city coming down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, how many gates does it have? Twelve. And what are on the names of, what are, what is written on the gates? The names of the tribes of Israel. And on the foundations, how many foundations does it have? It's not a hard question. Twelve. And who's written there? The names of the apostles. The names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And then he goes and he measures the city. And the city itself is 12,000 stadia high. 12,000 stadia deep, 12,000 stadia wide. And then the walls are 144 cubits. Are you getting the point? Okay. That the people have become one, and it is one, a one people of God. Um, yeah. 
There's more that I could share on this, but I'm well aware of the time, and I think I've gotten many of my ideas across <laughs> that hopefully are pretty biblically informed. So noting the time, if you do need to go, feel free. If not, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. The, the very last book in the, in the Bible, Revelation, still has a very, very Jewish uh, concept to it, like, you know, 12, uh, 12 tribes, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and, and the temple and the altar and incense. Yes. Right, right at the heels of going through the New Testament saying all this physical stuff is really not that important anymore. So mm -hmm. how do you explain that? Um, I explain it by just saying that the, that revelation employs a lot of imagery from the Old Testament and a lot of imagery that is very familiar to the Jewish people of the first century. I mean, a large part of the church in that, especially in that first generation is Jewish. And, you know, so they're familiar with a lot of extra biblical stuff and they're familiar. I mean, there is a lot of other apocalypses written for the Jewish people. Like that's where the, the genre comes from. And so, you know, I mean, it's drawing its imagery from especially books like Daniel and Ezekiel. Got a lot of Isaiah thrown in there. Got a good amount of Joel thrown in there all over the place. Exodus. So I think it's it's Jewish because the Old Testament is is very Jewish. <laughs> For obvious reasons. But, but then it seems like it really always is a Jewish uh, church and it never really becomes a, a Christian church. It's still very Jewish. Mm. Well, I, I've heard it put this way, that, um, that to become a Christian is, in a sense, to become tr a true Jew, you could say, right? If by Jew what we mean is a person who is a legitimate heir to the covenants of promise, okay, through, through the new covenant. We are welcomed into that house, right? Uh, we, um, we are welcomed into that world. Those scriptures that were theirs are now ours in Christ. We are welcomed into that olive tree. God didn't plant another, God didn't hew down that olive tree and grow another one, right? He simply grafted us in. And so we shouldn't be surprised if that's how we find So I have one more question. So you didn't really go into this, but uh, Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, but know of a surety that your seed will be oppressed for 400 years. I mean, Abraham, you would say, was kind of like a new believer trying to follow this mysterious God. And then he promises that his seed's going to be enslaved. I mean, how would Abraham understand that? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I can imagine different things going through Abraham's head. If I were Abraham, I'd be like, well, I'm glad that's going to be my seed and not me. <laughs> right? Like, so it could have been like a Hezekiah thing, not in my day. You know, so I'm not going to worry about it that much. Um, but, you know, God called Abraham to do a bunch of things that didn't make sense you know, that didn't make a lot of logical sense. Go to the land that I will show you, away from your kindred and all your security and stuff like that. And then, you know, uh, I'm I, obviously the ultimate example is take the one in whom I've been telling you this whole time the promises are going to be transmitted and kill him on an altar, you know? Um, and so, like, a lot, of, a lot of the story of Abraham is trusting in the promises of God even when you can't see any earthly way that this is a good thing or that this is going to turn out okay because God's trustworthy and he's, he's worthy. So, um, 
So there's that, you know, I, I think. And I mean, there's one could even back up further into saying like, well, what might God, and here we're speculating a little bit, but like what might God's purposes have been in the enslavement of the people in the Exodus? Like why not just plant them in the land? You're given part of an answer there in Genesis 15 where he says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, that the people here living right now are not yet at a certain level of wickedness that would justify their judgment. Um, but, um, but, you know, like bringing us through trials and terrible situations um, can, uh, can end up resounding for our good and for the good of humanity. And the idea that it was through this that God chose to demonstrate his superiority over all the gods of the nations, like that's a big thing. And that would, you know, and God chose to do that. And, and God chose also in doing that to reveal his heart for the oppressed, right? He didn't just say, I'm going to straight up make you kings. No, I'm going to make, I'm going to let you be slaves. And then I'm going to bring you out and I'm going to make you dependent on me. So there's a lot of different things that God is doing in that. And so like, that's why, you know, that sets a pattern of trust for us because God might call us to go through very difficult circumstances. Well, I think it's easy for us because, we, you know, we're 21st century Christians. We know the whole redemptive story. I'm just saying for Abraham yeah, living for in a pagan world yep. and a God that's going to mistreat his people, it's very hard to understand that yeah. as a blessing. And that's, I think, why Abraham's response of faith, I mean, granted, his response of faith is at the initial promise, right? But that I think, you know, he's, he is depicted as a man of faith, that he is, he does in a sense, despite some fail, some notable failings, have extraordinary faith. And that I think we're supposed to see as something extraordinary that Abraham has. Any others? You guys have been so good. All right, everyone. Well, thanks for coming out. And uh, next week, we'll be looking at the theme of Christ the King. And then Jordan will be leading us last week through the theme of rest. So thanks for coming out. God bless you all, and have a great night.